the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with everyone else who co-hosts the podcast. You can get their names from previous episodes, but to change things up, I'm not going to rattle them off this time. Not because I'm trying to leave them out, but just to vary things up a little bit. Okay, this week we have part three, no, part two. Part two in a three-part series that Matt Bates is doing, interviewing various scholars about the meaning of faith, pistis, in the New Testament. And this week we have Nijay Gupta talking about his book, Paul and the Language of Faith. Let me make sure I have that right. Yep, Paul and the Language of Faith. And we hope you enjoy the episode. And could I ask that if you have not yet done so, you know this is coming. If you have not done so, could you please give us a ratings on iTunes? It really, really makes a difference. And that's this, the one way you can kind of pay forward what you've gained by listening to this. Um, and also, I want to thank those of you who give regularly to the podcast. That makes a huge difference. We've, we have, we're in the fortunate position of having the problem of having to up our uh, internet. I don't know what you call it. Like our internet supply, um, so our hosting, so that we can... We kept hitting our bandwidth limit again. So that was good. We were glad to have that problem. And um, so we'll be uh, able to grow even more with your help. So share the word. And if you need ideas for that, just listen back through previous episodes in the beginning where I give different ideas. I don't have any new ones this week. Maybe you can suggest some to us. All right. Thanks for listening again and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript. One of my favorite verses that involves the faith word group, that is the pissed word family in Greek, appears in Paul's letters in Galatians 2.16. Paul says this, We know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through pistis of Jesus the Christ. So we also have pistuoed toward the Christ, Jesus, in order to be justified by the pistis of the Christ and not by works of the law. Nijay Gupta is with us today. That verse is full of exegetical challenges. Are you ready to solve all of them for us today, Nijay? Thanks, Matt. I don't, I don't know if we can get to all of them, but it'd be fun to have a good conversation about it. <laughs> yeah, it's probably ambitious to think we're going to you know, resolve all the issues uh, regarding pistis and, and whatnot. Um, but uh, I am going to make you, Nijay, choose a favorite verse about faith in Paul. Uh, what's your favorite verse? You got a favorite verse on faith in Paul? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I actually do. Um, it's a favorite verse in general, but it actually happens to include Pistis, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me in the life I live. I live by Pistis in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I, to, I, to me, I feel like that really sums up well Paul's theology in general and offers uh, helpful insight into one of his most important Pistis uh, uses. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's hard to say. That's not my favorite. Also, uh, I think there would be a lot of people who might agree. Uh, at least that's that's right at the top of the list. All right. Well, Nijay Gupta is the author of a brand new Erdman's book, 
Paul in the language of faith, which I'm excited about. Uh, Nijay is also a friend. Uh, we try to connect once in a while, uh, probably once a year for a meal of some sort, either at SBL or when I come uh, to Portland. Uh, and uh, this year, Nijay and I actually, we, uh, we had dinner with um, some names OnScript listeners might recognize, Josh Jipp, uh, Drew Strait, a couple of uh, other biblical scholars, and uh, we were hanging out. Um, how would you describe that dinner, Nijay? That was pretty wild. We were at a restaurant called Werewolf, and I remember you had to give your spirit animal uh, when you ordered, and this was kind of an absolute thing. It wasn't an option, and I think, uh, yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah, and, and uh, what's your spirit animal? Mine was Peregrine Falcon because that's my son's favorite uh, animal. Yeah, um, yeah. it's fair to say that the bartender at the werewolf um, liked to act like a werewolf, I think. Um, he sort of like screamed like to everyone like, Hey, everybody, put your... And he would drop the F-bomb, orders in, like, and put them in right now. And, and uh, he, he was a little over the top. You know, if you want to get your entertainment in an SBL, that's that's the place to go. Yeah. So anyway, if you if you want your uh, your uh, you know the bartender to um, yeah to to be enthused uh, about spirit animals and yelling and uh, ordering beer, um, then yeah, check out the werewolf in San Diego. Uh, but we, we we did have a nice time. Um, we, the food was actually pretty good. Yeah, the food was good. Yeah, and uh, it it was definitely good company as well. Um, all right, so uh, let's jump right to it then, uh, Nijay. Uh, uh, why this book then, um, and uh, how about you trot us through your your um, your basic thesis or whatever you want to do to give us a just real quick overview of what you're up to with this book. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I'll tell you a funny story about its origins. You know, I sat down with Michael Thompson, who was an editor at Erdman's back in 2014 or something like that, uh, 2013, and I and I said to him. Michael, uh, no one's written an important book on pistis in a hundred years, and and then I, you know, not too long later, you send me an email and say, "Hey, I'm writing a book on faith language in the New Testament. Let's have a conversation." And and then Teresa Morgan publishes a book on this as well, and you publish another book. So it's kind of uh, you know, it, it's it feels a little bit uh, a little bit late, but I'll tell you the origins and. Um, uh, you know, I just kind of laugh at, at just how timely this book is in terms of catching a wave of interest in faith language. Um, several years ago, I wrote a dictionary article on faith language in the Bible for Lexham Bible Dictionary. And part of that work was really digging into pistis and its use in the Septuagint in Gre- you know, pagan Greco-Roman world. And I just realized there's this whole world of usage beyond our simplistic notions of what this English word faith means when we encounter it in Sunday school, we encounter it even in Bible translation. I became really frustrated with how limited Bible translations are by using this one word faith, which can often come across as um, something that we believe that doesn't have reason or logic or this kind of thing that happens in our mind and doesn't really happen in our whole self. And I just felt that there was this huge detachment from our popular assumptions about what faith means and what actually pistis meant in the Greco-Roman world, in Jewish usage within that, and in the New Testament. And that got me down this road of really looking up all these uses and figuring out, what does Paul mean when he uses this language of faith? And I was really convicted that he's not talking about doctrine in a sort of stale um, 
mental ascent kind of way. He's talking about something deeply relational and deeply transformative. And that's what this book is about, is, is what, what does faith have to do with Christianity? What does faith have to do with Jesus? And how does Paul use it in ways that link it to the Old Testament, that link it to the Jesus tradition? And for me, doing this project made the language of faith come alive at the center of Paul's theology. And I know you're interested, Matt, in conversations at the Academy about divine and human agency. This has been going on for about 20 years. And scholars have talked about works of the law, law, righteousness, grace, but they've almost not touched until your work, I think, they almost not even touched at all Paul's faith language. So I'm glad for the stuff that you've done. I really wanted to go a little bit deeper into Pauline studies with that, and that's a big part of this book. Yeah, good. Thanks. And uh, yeah, Teresa Morgan uh, beat, beat both of us to the punch, I suppose, with her work. <laughs> but uh, in some ways, that was nice as it, it, she provides a lot of the, you know, the undergirding and the infrastructure. And I think her work is quality, although uh, you might have a few quibbles with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that your enthusiasm for the project um, shines through in your writing, too, um, as I think it's uh, an energetically written um, book that shows uh, your passion spills out, as I can tell that you think that faith is is really important and we're covering appropriate conversations about it, um, really uh, critical to both the academy and the church. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about Nijay. Nijay Gupta has his Ph.D. from Durham and teaches New Testament at Portland Seminary in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he's written several academic articles and books, um, and his most recent is obviously the one that we're discussing, Paul in the Language of Faith. Uh, but he's uh, involved in co-editing, uh, along with Scott McKnight, uh, The State of New Testament Studies, which just came out with Baker Academic not very long ago, and uh, to which Nijay contributed, I contributed, and a number of other uh, on-script uh, uh, guests that we've had uh, were contributors. Uh, and then he's also the co-editor of the Dictionary of Paul and His Letters. And a whole bunch of us in, uh, are in the Academy are working on articles for this new Dictionary of Paul and His Letters that's going to come out in a couple years. Anijay's got a, a whole bunch of other books uh, in, in progress. I know he has uh, commentary on Philippians um, and uh, also... Uh, he has an introduction to the New Testament coming out as well. I can't remember what's the name of the what's the name of the intro to the New Testament. That's it's called Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies, and that's Baker as well. With Baker, Baker, yeah. yeah. So uh, you can look look uh, for some of those uh, coming out. Uh, Nijay blogs on the Crux Sola blog, a popular blog, and uh, he likes to he likes to work. That's a, that's all he does. Uh, not really. Uh, he cooks Asian food too, watches superhero movies, drinks coffee, uh, watches soccer games, and hangs out with his wife Amy and his kids. All right, so. Um, Back to the book, you sort of began to touch on this a little bit, Nijay, um, but uh, you talked a little bit about abuses around faith in our, our culture, and I think that we could uh, we could name some ones quite easily, like just thinking that faith is like belief or mental assent or whatnot. What do you think is the one, though, like if you were to name like one or two that you think are just most pernicious and damaging in our culture, um, which ones do you think are really at the heart of like a larger church conversation problem with regard to faith? Yeah, I, you know, I don't talk about this as much in the book. I think it kind of is taken as an assumption. But there's this attitude that religious beliefs are something that you kind of tuck away and that you bring out whenever they're necessary, which is just sometimes. And so you think about, like, um, religious beliefs are something you might bring out on a Sunday morning or in a personal conversation, but it's not this kind of guiding thing for your whole life. It's just sort of a... a, a, a element of your life or a piece of your life. 
And, you know, when you look at Paul, when you look at Jesus, um, pistis is everything. It, it is kind of an all-consuming uh, orientation or approach to all things. I think about 1 Corinthians where Paul says, these things remain, faith, hope, love. I mean, he's talking about these things as kind of master guiding virtues or principles for life. And I feel like today, um, religious beliefs are just this sort of thing you carry around and you only utilize, quote unquote, when necessary. And unfortunately for a lot of people, it just doesn't seem to be that necessary very often. So so one of the biggest problems you see is like just a non-holistic um, approach to faith. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, right now it's it's uh, we're hearing a lot about religion and religious beliefs around political things and they're being used in kind of political ways. And, you know, that's not a bad thing, but then it, it, it continues to get categorized as either religious or political. Um, but for Paul... Um, it was sort of this this thing that drives everything. And I don't feel like it happens that way in a kind of separation of church and state kind of culture that we live in. Mm-hmm. Now, when we switch the conversation to the academy, maybe where the academy is missing the boat is quite, you know, with regard to faith language, is quite different perhaps from broader cultural uh, kinds of ways. This is, I'm going to read a quote from um, your page uh, 79. It was actually a footnote. Hey, I did read your footnotes, at least some of them. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it just struck me because I think you put it really well, and it captured a lot of my concerns, too. Um, so uh, I just thought I would uh, read it uh, for the audience, give you um, them a sense of your writing and of the flavor of your project. Uh, it says this, It is remarkable how resistant modern English translations are to rendering pistis as faithfulness in Paul. My impression is that there is an ideological concern to preserve the non-works, quote, passive righteousness, unquote, theology that can be read into Paul's anthropological use of pistis. Um, can you speak a little bit more about this concern um, that you'd have um, about the the desire to preserve the non-works passive righteousness theology um, that you see prevalent in some sectors in the academy and why it's a concern to you? Yeah, you know, part, one of my passions is Bible translation. I've written, you know, several commentaries, and for those commentaries, I've done my own translation. So I'm really kind of highly sensitive to how English translations translate Greek words. I know there's not a perfect translation out there. Um, all of them have their flaws. But the, within the major English translations like the NIV or the NET or the RSV, NRSV, there's this tendency that they must translate pistis as the word faith. And in the letters of Paul, there's only two exceptions. Romans 3, where it refers to the pistis of God, which they translate as faithfulness. And Galatians 5, where it's in a list of virtues, uh, uh, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then everywhere else, they feel like we absolutely must translate it as faith or else, I don't know, maybe we'll fall into works righteousness or something. It seems like this very strange bifurcation that when it relates to God, we can translate as faithfulness. But when pistis relates to the human end, we can't because all of a sudden we're creating, I don't know, a works righteousness religion. I I think it's an unfortunate tendency there are translations that have tried to fix that, but I think they've made, maybe have created more inconsistencies. So it is really challenging. How do you translate this word? It is a very unusual word because, you know, pistis can lean in the direction of pistio, which tends to mean belief, or can lean in the direction of pistos, which tends to mean faithfulness uh, or faithful. 
And so it has this really interesting polyvalent quality um, that makes it very challenging to translate. But I think the major translations get it wrong when they just refuse to allow it to mean faithfulness. Yeah, that's helpful. And uh, it's a good segue into the next question I was going to ask, which is um, related to sort of the overall model you propose as a corrective, which would be um, maybe uh, maybe it's not specifically a way of correcting translation problems, but of addressing the problems in the academy and the church of seeing um, uh, pistis as sort of a one-dimensional word. You propose a spectrum model, right, where um, you have different ends of the spectrum. Can you kind of explain your spectrum model then and... Um, yeah, how that helps us. Yeah, so, you know, some people want to argue faith means belief. Other people want to say, which translates faithfulness. My argument is uh, this word kind of modulates on a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you have maybe translations that might lean in the area of belief, where it focuses mostly on uh, thought, epistemology, cognition. We see this really often when Pisces is used in relationship to belief. Um, not necessarily religious beliefs, but any kind of belief, um, believe with our minds, confess with our mouth, that kind of thing. Pisces can mean that kind of thing. But then we have uses where it moves to the opposite end of a spectrum, where it means something maybe closer to fidelity, allegiance, um, even close to obedience, although I don't go quite that far. I would never translate Pistis as obedience. But I think we can get really close to it in terms of the, the kind of orientation of the whole self towards something that leads to obedience. And so I feel like based on which, you know, a given circumstance, it can move across the spectrum. But sometimes it has a kind of generic quality where it means kind of the whole kit and caboodle. And in those instances, I encourage a translation like trust. Um, I really get that partly from Peter Oakes, who recommends that in his Galatians commentary. I get that from Richard Hayes, who recommends that in some of his work. Um, but my bigger p- point is we can't have a one-word-fits-all definition or um, simple translation of pistis because of how dynamic it is. And in my conclusion, I used the example of the Greek verb sozo, which means save. Sometimes in the synoptics, it's translated as save, as in forgiveness from sins. Sometimes it's used as heal. So you really have to figure out what the context says uh, or opens up, and then you have to decide what's the best translation. I'd love if Pistis was treated that way. I don't go into a lot of detail and say, in this instance, do this, and in this instance, do that. I just really want to free translators up to find more dynamic ways of approaching this interesting ver- uh, noun. Yeah, and I, I think that the word um, trust is um, certainly a helpful and valid translational option and probably the center of the Pistis word group as long as it's paired with something like loyalty. And I think the, the problem is that like faith, like if you kind of want to think of the word uh, like a model I sometimes have thought about as a two-sided coin, right? Where on the one hand you have faith, on the other on the other faithfulness. On the one hand you have trust, on the other hand you have loyalty or fidelity. Um, and um, the problem I think as I've tr- tried to wrestle with using just trust is that that it can involve embodiment, but it's mostly a cognitive term for us, right? We don't tend to think of trust very much as an embodied activity, and we tend to think of it more in the mental cognitive. Now, it's, it's not that pistis doesn't involve cognition, right? It does. Um, but, that, um, but that at least for English language um, usages, 
I, I fear that it moves too much in the psychological, emotive sort of realm and cognitive realm for people without capturing the sort of embodied other side of it, which obviously you're very aware of and you're trying to, to capture too. Uh, so I, I like um, what the spectrum sort of model does. Or on the one hand, you have sort of on the one end faith in the more cognitive sense, on the other end faithfulness in the more obedient sense, with trust as sort of a bridge between them somewhat. Um, and uh, I think that's helpful. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges is both in the academy, but especially in the church, we get stuck in using words that we use a lot, and they start and they kind of lose their meaning. They kind of get blanched. And so, for example, in the classroom, I've I've talked in this fall about the word fellowship as a translation for koinonia, and how it gets us so far away from what koinonia means because of how the church has used fellowship to talk about the coffee and donut hour after church or come play video games, you know, for this, you know, we challenge night at church or something like that. And it gets us away from what that really means. I think that happens with pistis as we, 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 we use these words over and over again, like faith and, and that, that gets co-opted into all these other things and we get away from kind of, so maybe that would happen with trust. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not the right word. Sometimes uh, I've used the word firm commitment. Uh, it's hard to get a precise term there, but commitment uh, gets us close. I think you and others have used believing allegiance, which tries to be holistic. The reason I like the word allegiance, which I know you've become fond of, is it starts us using words that we're not as commonly familiar with to start to rethink. This happened with the the word basilea, which means kingdom. And I remember a couple of scholars, Dominic Crossan and, and Tom Wright, uh, saying you could translate that as empire. And I remember how jarring that was for the first time where you thought, Basilea Tufetu, empire of God, how wrong that felt. And yet it's it's a very sensible translation yes, of Basilea. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, that's true. And uh, yeah, I think words like, um, one of the things that, at least for me, like why I'm attracted to allegiance is because it it, it obviously can include non-embodied ideas, right? We do, it doesn't mean that we're not trusting if we're allegiant. It means that we usually are, right? It, it doesn't mean that we're not believing. It means that we usually are believing a certain set of things. So it sort of adds layers to the onion. It adds the missing layer of embodiment. Um, but yeah, I think it's also a word that just shakes people up. And I think there's, there's some utility uh, in that direction as long as it's within the bounds of um, of, of truth. So um, yeah, how about um, let's let's jump into your uh, chapter on the history of interpretation real quick. I'm just curious um, as you had a, a nice chapter, kind of um, le- taking um, readers through um, you know some of the earliest uses of the word in the apostolic fathers of Pistis, um, all the way uh, up to modern. And um, who did you think you learned the most from uh, in that in that history of interpretation? Yeah, um, you know the, the whole the whole experience of looking at this sweep of history is, was really helpful, especially the apostolic fathers, where they're very comfortable using pistis as a social virtue, that this is something Christians do. Um, and they often link pistis with hospitality, which is, you know, one of your guests, Josh Jip, has done before. But th- we see this a lot in the apostolic fathers. They weren't afraid of that. They weren't shy about that. Uh, but I would say probably the number one was Luther. I actually sat down with Luther's Galatians commentary, and I read it cover to cover. I hadn't done that before, and I wanted to be really attentive to his use of faith language and his interest in pistis. And I was actually shocked by what I discovered. I was expecting to find a, a Luther that was doubling down on quote-unquote justification by faith, 
And I didn't find that to the degree that I had been taught that about Luther. What I found was a Luther who was very focused on what I call the Christ relation. And this gets close to a theology of union with Christ. Now, Luther's not popularly associated with union of Christ the way that Calvin is. But if you sit down and read his Galatians commentary, it makes sense. Because Luther was so focused on everything being about the relationship with Christ, the Christ relation. He didn't want any doctrine to get in the way of that. And I would say that Luther would say not even justification by faith as a doctrine should come before the Christ relation. And I have some quotes there in the book, but he basically talks about faith as becoming one with Christ. Now, once you recognize that, you can see a lot of his doctrines fit well into that. But that was probably the thing that surprised me the most. I thought I would enter into this project and disagree with Luther. What I found that I, was, I disagree with Lutherans in some ways, but actually I find Luther very refreshing and very insightful. And I think his reading of Galatians and of Paul is pretty good on faith. Mm. I, I thought you were going to say that just because it seemed like you got particularly excited uh, when talking about Luther and that portion um, uh, in reading through the book. Um, and then uh, beyond the history of interpretation, you you um, have a, a chapter where you look at um, the background, um, we might call it to uh, Pistis uh, or the foreground, where we, you look at Greco-Roman and Jewish sources outside the Bible on Pistis. And um, I thought uh, that was um, uh, certainly um, helpful. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to just read one line uh, because I thought it, it def- certainly was striking to me. Uh, this is um, from your page uh, 78. Uh, you say, it's interesting and instructive to note that of the more than 1,000 appearances of Pistis in the Greek literature of antiquity, the vast majority of, the, of these are in political or conflict-oriented histories, and the obvious connotations involve allegiance and pledges of loyalty. Um, so it's interesting that the background of the word pistis, or um, the broader world of uh, usage of pistis, is so strongly in the sort of loyalty direction or fidelity direction, and kind of relationally attuned. But then when we've moved into um, kind of uh, doctrinal studies of systematic theology in the church, uh, there's been a real reticence to look at that side of the pistis word group or to take it seriously as part of the meaning of faith. Um, so anyway, that struck me. Um, uh, I also uh, really enjoyed uh, reading through your um, your bit on Dio Chrysostom's on trust and distrust. Uh, that might be new to some readers that there were a- there was actually um, some treatises written in antiquity on specifically issues of trust and distrust. Um, so uh, yeah, I enjoyed just seeing um, some of the uh, uh, the fun there, where um, you know uh, Dio Chrysostom gets uh, excited and says you can't even trust yourself, right, and uh, and things like that. What so anyway, that was that, that's just one of the things that I thought was interesting. I really enjoyed that chapter in particular out of your book, partly because some of it was new to me. Um, well, some of your other stuff's new to me too, but that was particularly new to me. Um, how about how about for you? Was there something in that in in reading the broader literature, the Greco-Roman literature, that um, there, that either a, a certain author or, or discourse that grabbed your attention, or something that you found particularly memorable that's really stuck with you? Yeah, you know, I I. I um... I, you know, it's on the same page you talked about, page 78. One of my favorite examples of a use of pistis from antiquity is actually in Plutarch. He has this really wonderful essay called On Talkativeness, where he kind of complains about people who talk too much. And he talks about the virtue of silence, and he gives an example. 
Um, so I'm just going to read from this really quick. He talks about how Odysseus's friends um, show the virtue of Pistis by keeping their mouth quiet when they're being tortured by the Cyclops Polyphemus. So he says, he says this, even when they were dragged about and dashed upon the ground by the Cyclops, they would not denounce Odysseus, nor show that fire shape, nor show that fire sharpened instrument prepared against the monster's eye, but preferred to be eaten raw rather than tell a single word of the secret, an example of self-control and pistis which cannot be surpassed. And you know, just going back to your point about people not really recognizing how pistis was used in antiquity, um, this is a very active, very violent form of pistis, of showing that allegiance, that fidelity, that firm commitment. And something that was pointed out to me by R.T. France's work was, even in the New Testament, pistis is something you do. And he used the example of Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus criticizes the Pharisees. And he says, you neglected to do the weightier matters of the law. And he includes pistis among those items, proving that doing and pistis shouldn't be seen as opposing things. In the ancient world, they would have been seen together, you do pistis. And I think we're afraid of that. We're afraid sometimes that if we put those things together, we're going to become works-oriented. But I just don't think that's how Paul thought of it. He can hold these things in tension. And part of my desire to talk about the divine human agency debate is to say active participation in the Christ relation is a central part of Paul's theology. We shouldn't be afraid of that. We shouldn't quantify it. Hey, if I do these 10 things, I'll be pleasing to God. But real relations require buy-in and doing, and ancient people understood that. I think we understand that relationships, and we should apply that to Paul's theology as well. Yeah, no, that's terrific. Um, so then you, you have a, a chapter on um, faithfulness is better. I like that, that uh, t- the title of that chapter uh, that treats uh, 1 Thessalonians and Philippians. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything uh, in particular you wanted to, to comment on in, in uh, either of those, as um, I think that uh, they both are um, sort of um, teasing out some of the things we've been discussing and shows uh, how the word pistis in both of those correspondences l- l- lends itself more in a loyalty kind of direction or faithfulness kind of direction. Um, uh, anything you wanted to, uh, that, that grabbed your attention there that you want to expand on or... Um, well, I, you know, one thing that I know in that chapter and, and all these chapters, you know, I, I think you were at SBL when I talked about this, but um, I remember learning from Simon Gathercole who quotes um, Callimachus. Callimachus says, um, a big book is a big evil, meaning don't write long books. And I'm one of these people, I'm, I'm not going to write a 700, 800, 900 page book. What I like to do is just take this interesting idea give kind of a substantial but short treatment of it and start a conversation. So the, the, the I don't cover all of Paul's letters. Um, I don't do a comprehensive study, but I really want to just put down some tent poles and give some vignettes. So these chapters are vignettes. And so what I do with Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, is I say, here we have letters where we know that the recipients are being persecuted. And how does Pistis take shape in that context? And what I notice is it takes shape as a kind of perseverance, resilience, um, a kind of um, following hard after Jesus kind of attitude. And we, one thing that's interesting is not only do you have the use of pistis in both these letters, that's very similar, but you also have the use of military imagery, uh, shield of faith or 
uh, being a fellow soldier. Um, and I think you combine those because you just had mentioned that uh, Pistis appears a lot in military discourses because it's an essential element of a soldier. They have to be loyal. They have to be a legion, as you would say. And I think Paul can draw off of these. So we can't be afraid of leaning into that and saying, okay, faith isn't this thing we do in a hammock and have a quiet time. Uh, faith is often seen expressed in that perseverance, that pushing ahead in the storm, that climbing that mountain or climbing that hill of battle. And I think that com- takes shape in those in those mm-hmm. letters in particular. Yeah, no, that, that's 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 super helpful, and I think remembering the sort of persecution context um, uh, for those letters is um, something that sharpens um, our understanding of Pistis. Um, in chapter six or seven, you you deal especially with the uh, Corinthian correspondence, um, and you argue as part of that that faith has a distinct epistemological sense, right? That it has to do with, um, as you put it, I believe, believing the unbelievable. And I'll be frank in saying this was the part that I had um, probably the most difficult time swallowing, uh, as I do wonder if you could, you know, that um, whether or not you could get to this reading on the basis of Paul alone and uh, without bringing in sort of Luther and Kierkegaard to pave the way and the whole German existential tradition. So I want to give you a chance to uh, defend yourself. You got a little bit of pushback on this point at SBL as well, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, why do you think then that um, that Paul has a distinct epistemological sense for Pistis? And what do you mean by that in the first place? And um, and yeah, maybe unpack that for us. Yeah, you know, we've talked a little bit earlier about Teresa Morgan, and she has an excellent book, Roman Faith and Christian Faith. She did all this spade work on kind of what I just mentioned, that on all these uses in the ancient world, the vast majority of pistis relate to concord, uh, relationships of commitment and fidelity. But that's not the whole story. And um, I feel like Morgan didn't invest enough into looking at the side of pistis and its possible uses that relate to what we think of as um, how we understand reality. And... Um, and, and I, I was a little bit surprised she didn't lean into uh, uses of pistis and pistio in the Septuagint, especially in the prophets. And what I noticed there is 1st Corinthians draw a lot off of Isaiah. Obviously, Paul does in general, but those letters have quite a lot of it. And in Isaiah in particular, we see, um, for example, in the servant, um, you know, the suffering servant uh, language there, I used to pistis, which has to do with believing the unbelievable. Uh, uh, you know, that, that passage starts with, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it goes into this discourse about this person that you couldn't ever imagine would bring redemption or be kind of someone that dies for the people. Um, what I started seeing is a connection between some of that kind of imagery and what Paul was trying to do in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The key word that I focused, the key uh, verse that I focus on in, in those chapters, especially in Corinthians, is walking by pistis and not by ados, uh, a form or sight. And what I noticed, what I came to conclude in those chapters is the Corinthians are really struggling with true wisdom. Um, and what does it mean to truly know what's right and what's true and what's holy and righteous? And they were trying to assimilate Christ to their uh, culture uh, or their their pre- preconceived understandings rather than letting that transform everything. 
And so what I argue in those chapters is Paul can use pistis as a way of thinking in a brand new way about all of reality. So, for example, Paul says, we, we used to know Christ according to the flesh. Now we no longer know him according to the flesh. We know nothing according to the flesh. And, you know, we, we've had to look at a new way at all things. And I think Paul can use pistis as a way of talking about that transformation of the imagination or conversion of the imagination. And I use the chapter on faith and forms for 2 Corinthians because I think in 2 Corinthians in particular, he wants to use idolatry as a way of thinking about reality. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting connection that you made. With it. You, you did quite a bit on that. And you had an earlier CBQ article on idolatry. I remember reading at some point um, that, yeah, that, that you were riffing on. Oh, I, you weren't riffing directly on the article, maybe in your book, but, I, but it, I, maybe it was resonating with me because I'd read that previous article by you. Well, I've been thinking a lot about that in a variety of different areas of Paul's theology, and one of the, one of the interesting things is um, Christians, as well as Jews, didn't have statues, cult statues. And this was a really strange thing in the ancient world. To worship a deity was to worship with a statue. And so I think part of what Paul could be doing is saying, listen, we don't have statues, we don't have temples, we don't really even have you know traditional priests. We have to be thinking about God and reality in a completely different way, and I think he can use pistis as a way of talking about strange wisdom, as I as I name one of the chapters, um, you're talking about being too Lutheran. Well, you know, actually, I start out with with Bonhoeffer for some of that, because I feel like he goes in that direction as well. Uh huh. Um, yeah, and and maybe some of it is uh, you know a bit of just the semantic or rhetoric of believing the unbelievable. I mean, it, partly that might depend on how you class something like the resurrection. If you're considering that something that's unbelievable, right? Believing the unbelievable, well, then in our modern discourse, certainly it is something unbelievable, right? That we have to really appropriate by faith. And in Paul's day and age, um, part, partly that was true as well. But there's like a strong evidential component, right, to the unbelievable that um, that I think is what is jarring me at least, and maybe some uh, maybe some others will feel the same as they work through that chapter, perhaps not. Um, but I think for me, it's, the, it's sort of like that Paul, like whenever he says we walk by faith, not by sight, like he has in view like the present, you know, uh, bodily circumstance, right? Saying that like, well, right now we're, we're, we're clothed in the flesh, but we long to be clothed in the heavenly dwelling. And, you know, while we're unclothed, we're looking forward, you know, to being clothed and so on and so forth. Um, and part of that is ov- obviously predicated on the hope of of the resurrection. He's seen Christ's resurrected body, right? And similarly in 1 Corinthians 15, it's like predicated on um, ultimately the Corinthian correspondence, like some of that belief language is predicated on the resurrection. So um, that's maybe the, part, the the tension that I was feeling is that believing the unbelievable didn't feel like the, that was right, like properly a Pauline category in the sense that he thinks that those things believable, partly because they're evidence-based, right? So maybe it was me just not, I like, I like the, 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 the rhetoric of believing the unbelievable, right? But I, but, but I, I felt like that unbelievable part, believing the unbelievable didn't seem fully Pauline to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in some ways, um, it, it, it's my way of saying, uh, Believing what once we thought was impossible. Um, you know, the example I use when I'm sharing about this in, in the classroom is from one of my favorite movies, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I hope I'm not spoiling this, but if you haven't watched it, then it's your fault. But at the end of the movie, he has to go through these tests to get to the Holy Grail. And one of them is crossing this big chasm. And it seems impossible. And 
how do you do that? And so probably many people who tried turned away or they fell into the chasm. And Indy has to, you know, get across it in order to save his father. And he has this book uh, that kind of gives him codes and secrets. And the book tells him to step out in faith and, to, and they'll, somehow he'll make it walking on an invisible bridge. And in that moment, he has to believe the unbelievable, but he has this guidebook that's kind of telling him what's, you know, what to do. And I feel like for Paul, it's that way with the spirit and scripture and the Jesus tradition. He has this evidence that other people don't have in some ways. So I guess he's inviting people to trust him, to trust what he's saying and to step out uh, on that invisible bridge, so to speak. You know, he has evidence, but what he's saying I guess maybe you're right. I like the language believing the unbelievable, but maybe it's believing what seems foolish because that's what he actually says in first Corinthians where he says, you know, the, the, this message is the word of the cross is foolishness. He doesn't back down in first or second Corinthians. He goes on and speaks more foolishness. Second Corinthians 12. Let me continue to be crazy and foolish if I'm out of my mind. So he kind of plays off on being a little bit kooky. Uh, and I guess I'm kind of I'm stepping into that saying, you know, Christians are we're doing and continue to do things that seem foolish, illogical. Um, they operate by their own, in some ways, unique sense of right and wrong. While at the same time, you know, the Paul of Acts really tries hard to show that he is logical and legal and things like that. So I don't think it's one thing for Paul. But I think he is kind of telling people to get a little crazy uh-huh. in First Second Corinthians. Gotcha. Um, no, I think that's that's um, that's a thoughtful reflection, and um, yeah, it helps me to think about more um, how evidence-based things connect to the foolishness of God, as uh, as it's definitely a important theme in First Corinthians, especially, but a bit in Second Corinthians too. Now. Um, I know you've read Downs and Lapinga's new book because you endorsed it on the back cover. Um, and uh, uh, their book is The Faithfulness of the Risen Christ. And we, we actually just had them on, on script. So there are, are, are at least for me, uh, the, the last time I, I hosted an episode, it was their episode. Um, so uh, they apply what they call a monosemic and relevance theoretical approach to language, the idea that like a word has a core central meaning right, that, um, that tends to govern um, usages as usages tend to be more relevance-based. Um, and um, so I think it's fair to say that they, they have that sort of monosemic approach and that you, uh, you tend to apply maybe a slightly more selective approach, saying that like in Galatians, Paul's using the language of faith this way, in 1 Corinthians another way, um, and so on and so forth. So yeah, if, if we were to bring you two together for a conversation, which maybe we should do, um, how would you interact with their method? Is it something that if you were to go back, you'd want to like look more on the in, under the lexical semantic sort of questions? Um, is it more like a um, yeah? How, I guess how would you engage in terms of method, like um, the methodological advances that they're proposing? At least, are you on board? Are you not on board? Are you? How does your project yeah. interface with them? You know, in theory, in general, in Greek. I think that they're right. Um, so, for example, I, te- I teach Greek, and when I talk to my students about word meanings, um, I warn them that when you look at your, you know, the lexicon, the back of your Greek grammar, don't just sort of pick your favorite meaning. Usually, usually there's a core meaning, and then the other ones are kind of um, their pragmatic uses that are going to nuance and shape it. So, for example, n. And can't just mean anything, but it all is built around this, you know, conception of in somehow. 
um, and it kind of can move in different directions, but it's all coming from there. So I, I agree with that in, in theory. The problem is pistis, not only is it sort of this Swiss army of Greek words, um, so it can mean proof. Uh, Philo loves to use it in, in, the, in the way of um, clear proof, uh, sort of a rhetorical use of pistis. Um, it can mean belief. It can mean you know, loyalty. It can mean to hold something in trust. You know, that, that creates some challenges to this idea of it having this kind of one. And then you have the problem of how it's used in the Christian tradition. Um, and so here I was helped by a converse, personal conversation I had with Jonathan Pennington. And I was talking to him about how unusual Pistis is in the Christian tradition, uh, in the Jesus tradition, and in Paul, and then how it's used in the later New Testament uh, epistles and things. And he said, oh, that, that is kind of like how... Uh, Jesus scholars look at the usage of kingdom of God. And he said, you know, there was this uh, theory that the kingdom of God is not this one thing in the Gospels. It actually, he refers to it as a tensive symbol, meaning it's kind of a placeholder for, for many different things. And so it's hard to create a definition of kingdom of God, just like it's hard to create a definition of faith. So I think I would say um, all things being equal, yes. Uh, uh, Downs and Lapenga are right, but the problem is all things aren't equal because this word has been kind of it's like sil- this is the silly putty of words, and that that creates these challenges where you, it's too elastic to to have this centralized meaning. Yeah, and I think in 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 terms of your own method, it's certainly the case that you're you're very clear that it has a whole range of meanings. And I think that in your your individual studies, you're wanting to say, hey, look, in First Corinthians, we have this sense that seems like it might be more prominent. In Galatians, this sense a little more prominent, uh, without denying that there's a, a semantic core uh, to the word. So, yeah, I, I don't think that you guys are in strong methodological tension or something like that. Um, but nevertheless, there's certainly a different emphasis that comes out in in your books, uh, and I, I think that's. That's that's interesting, um, and I'm sure you're, you're aware of um, F. Gerald Downing's article on um, faith and disambiguation um, that um, that would tend to lend itself in these kinds of directions of a monosemic core as well, and uh, I think that's a, a helpful. Um, yeah, additional sort of conversation partner. Um, in, in terms of your, your treatment of Galatians, um, there, there are a lot of things in, uh, that you do with Galatians and Romans that are, I think, helpful and, and thought-provoking. I thought, the, um, and of course, some exegetical decisions I disagree with, too, as uh, you, you tend toward a non-Christological, uh, well, it's not even the right way to frame it, but um, yeah, a, a, a maybe uh, Christ is not the agent or the actor of Pistis uh, in the way that I would see it for, so, for some things. Uh, but nevertheless, um, there were some things I really liked. And um, I think some of the things that were distinct, and that would have to do with especially your your um, arguments in favor of covenant, covenantal pistism, right? Uh, that uh, that you're wanting to react against E.P. Sanders' covenantal nomism, right? Um, so I I felt like this was one of the most distinct aspects of your work. Certainly, you should highlight it for other people. Um, First of all, like, I want you to speak about pistis as covenant language. Like, what did you discover there? I think that was extremely important and for me new and, and I think very thought provoking. And on the other hand, like, how are you trying to mobilize that uh, with regard to a reaction to Sanders trying to frame a new, a new trajectory for us in the academy? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because this, I think, is one of the most unique elements of the book. So, um, one thing that I discovered, I don't actually feel like Morgan picked up on this, um, is. Uh, in the Septuagint, um, you have this situation in Nehemiah, I think chapter 10, where um, 
you have the rededication of the rebuilding of the walls uh, of the temple, and you have this interesting statement that says that the signatories will, uh, in Hebrew it says, they will karat and emunah, which means cut uh, firmness or trust or faithfulness. Normally you karat a berit, which is cutting a covenant. It may refer to cutting the animals, we don't really know. But the, the Septuagint doesn't quite know what to do with this, do with this, so they say diatithemi, which means establish, and then they use pistis. Uh, now, what they're picking up on is the fact that emunah is probably some kind of circumlocution for berit, covenant. And so the Septuagint basically just parrots the Hebrew text and chooses pistis for emunah, which it does pretty often in Septuagint. What that means, though, is that Jews were feeling comfortable in the Second Temple period using pistis as a circumlocution or an approximation of covenant language. We see this come out really clearly in Josephus' Antiquities, where he's summarizing the history of Israel, often uh, paraphrasing the Old Testament. And what happens is when he's referring to covenants, probably half the time he'll use a formal word for covenant uh, in Greek, but the other half of the time he'll use pistis, which is the plural form of pistis, as a normal way that, that Greeks talk about mutual pledges of fidelity. And uh, this kind of was really striking for me because it's deeply relational. It's deeply relational and it fits well into reviving a sense that Paul actually cared a lot about covenant. Josephine scholars have known this for a long time. They're not blind to this. They're not ignorant about this. It just hasn't made its way into traditional New Testament studies. But when Josephine scholars talk about why did Josephus do this. They obviously they don't know exactly why, but their their guess is pistes translates better for an audience uh, who wouldn't be familiar with Jewish thinking. It's going to help them understand what a covenant is using language that was familiar broadly in the Greco-Roman world. And I think the New Testament writers broadly adopt this in their use of pistis. Now Galatians, this this I found really interesting. Traditionally, we have this idea that Paul has these opponents. Uh, I call them the Jewish Christian, Jewish Christian missionaries. So you have the Galatians, you have Paul, you have the Jewish Christian missionaries. And you have Galatians 2.16, which I think you read at the beginning of our time, where you have Paul juxtaposing pistis Christu, faith in Christ, let's say, and works of the law. Now, there's this assumption that the, the Jewish Christian missionaries were pushing justification by works of the law. And Paul was pushing justification by faith in Christ. I don't now. I don't actually think that's what was happening. What was happening is the Jewish Christian missionaries were saying, "You are justified by pistis," because Jews were very comfortable using pistis. By pistis through Christ and works of the law. The the unique thing that Paul does is not to introduce pistis. Because that was already there in the Jewish tradition. It's already there in the Jesus tradition. The interesting thing was to separate Torah from pistis. I, I refer to this as like splitting the atom for the first time. You couldn't imagine pistis happening without Torah for a Jew of any kind, Christian or non-Christian. They go together. It was sort of the skin on the bones of covenant. And so what Paul does is he, he separates these things what may be for the very first time, and says, okay, no, we have to think of pistis as something that can happen without Torah. 
uh, as the kind of conduit or platform for a relationship with God. Um, so you have people like Jimmy Dunn and Morna Hooker who said, um, actually, Paul is a covenantal nomist because there's this relationship that includes fidelity, grace, goodwill. And so Sanders didn't think Paul was a covenantal nomist. Jimmy and Morna Hooker thought that Paul fits that pretty well if you include Christocentrism and the spirit. I think maybe the, the basic concept is okay, but Paul doesn't actually talk about nomism. I get this from uh, Brian Rosner. He has a great book called Paul and the Law, and he has a great JSNT, I think, article on this. Paul doesn't use a traditional language that would reinforce nomism. So I would say a, a better thing would be uh, covenantal Christism or pistism, pistism meaning this focus on the Christ relation. I think that fits Paul's theology better. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And um, it's I, I like the priority on pistis. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is at Galatians 2.16, where it's often translated, you know, a person is saved, um, you know, but, uh, and it uses the word but, but in Greek, it's the ame, right? It's the accept or the unless. Um, and uh, that there's this, this famous, like, and so it allows works of law as perhaps a possible path within pistis rather than a, di- a, a diametrically op- opposed sort of idea of the relationship between faith and works of law. Uh, so there's some interesting possibilities, um, even with some of the, the shades of meaning in the Greek text um, with some of that. Well, um, I'm one of the uh, reasons... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of the reasons I felt like this is a good way of talking about Paul's theology is because of what sometimes scholars refer to as the absolute use of pistis. This happens in Galatians 3 where he says, when faith came. And scholars have really scratched their head and thought, was, you know, is Paul talking about when human faith came? No, that would make no sense because it's all about the arrival of Christ. Is it about when Christ came? Maybe, but then why wouldn't he have just said that? So I argue it's the, it's the possibility of a new relationship with God through the Christ relation. Uh, it's putting the focus on Christ, but it's not discounting the fact that we enter into it, this by faith. All right, I, I want to I want to circle back to the Christ relation question. What you mean by that? So you can begin thinking about that and hold that in your brain. But I realized I got so excited about talking with you because a I like your topic and you're a friend um, that I forgot to do our speed round. Um, I, I, w- I always like to do these speed rounds. Um, I usually do two, but uh, this time I think we're only going to do one because of the sake of time. So let me hit you with some speed round questions. You know what this is all about. Um, so uh, so question number one: um, What's something you find embarrassing? I, you know, I think it's embarrassing for me when um, I'm ever introduced by anyone. I don't know why. Maybe it's it's the attention. Introductions, awkward. Yeah, introductions are embarrassing. Yeah, okay. Um, so even your introduction of being in this, we can, we can cut <laughs> yeah, that out. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, uh, this would have been better. Aaron, Aaron Heim was going to co-host with me this episode, but then she got sick. So this would have been better if Aaron was here, but we'll do it anyway. Uh, why do you think Aaron Heim is a better on-script co-host than Chris Tilling? Okay. Um, you know, actually, this is honest to goodness true. I think Aaron has a great radio voice. Oh, I don't know if you picked up voice. on that, but she just has a great oh, come radio on, no, but, voice. But Chris has a British accent. That's like every Chris advantage. That's every advantage to have that accent. I want to hear Chris do a German accent. <laughs> I want him to do a whole episode in a German accent. That would that might push him above Aaron. All right. So uh, all the world has been in a rage about Star Wars. Uh, so what about you? Star Wars, yes, no, or may? I'll tell you, my favorite Star Wars movie is Rogue One. 
And I think just because better characterization, I think just a really unique plot. So I've always been a big fan of Star Wars, especially because of my brothers. But um, I, I've watched Rogue One more probably than any of the other Star Wars movies. Okay. So you're in the yes category for sure. Um, what's, a, what's a good non-theology or non-Bible-related book that you've read recently? Or an, or an author? Like uh, someone you want to recommend? Or are you just locked down and you're just doing nothing but Theo? Um, okay, so there's a, there's a bookstore here in Portland. Have you been to a Pals? Have you been to Pals? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I oh, recommend yeah. people go to Pals. Pals when they're – Pals is pretty good. When I go to Pals, you know, my first couple years I lived here in Portland, I used to go straight to the theology section. I actually go to the classic section uh, now, and I look for a low book. Um, so I just encourage uh-huh. anyone to pick up a low book. You are a total I nerd. am a nerd. I would say Mary Beard is one of my favorite uh, classicists who does really good work. Um, so I, I encourage people to read Mary Beard. But, um, I, you know, I always encourage people to read the classics. Plutarch Plutarch is one of my favorites to just pick. Oh, and, and then uh, Seneca. I'm always a fan of sitting down with a, with a Seneca uh, book and, and sitting and reading. So I encourage a return to classics. All right. So uh, would you rather listen to Michael Jackson or Bruce Springsteen? I, I would go Jackson. I'm a Jackson fan. Go with Jackson. Yeah. You got a favorite Jackson song you're going to sing for us then? <laughs> Do I have a favorite Jackson song? Oh, man. Come on, you got to beat it You know us? what? We, we, Just beat it. We introduced our it. kids a few years ago to Weird Al Yankovic. And, man, they love Eat It, which is eat the mock, yeah, you know, that, the mock that, song. That was probably Weird Al's, like, that was the pinnacle of his career. Yes. had to be Eat It instead of Beat yes. It. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah. Um, so you're you going to, you know, how about Billy Jean? You That's know, that a good one. one. Or, um, um, gonna, so are you going to sing one no, for me? No, but maybe we'll do a B-Sides at some point. All right. So um, how about, uh, I just want you to react to this word. How does it make you feel? Okay, that's the question. Um, moist. <laughs> Uh, don't touch it. <laughs> don't touch it. What if it's a brownie? <laughs> Still don't touch I it. I mean, don't, don't touch it. Moist. Well, that's kind of funny because I was on a podcast one time and they asked me, like, what's the word that, like, creeps you out the most? And that was the I word I, I used. I remember that moist. one. I think. Because yeah. I, I couldn't. I don't remember what that was on. But uh, I was like, the word moist is just a disgusting word to me. So I don't know what it is about it. But anyway, I just thought I'd try it out on you and see if uh, it's it's also something that perturbs you. All right, well, uh, that's it for the speed round. Let's circle back to, uh, to wrapping this up. Now, I'd, I'd, I'd asked you about the Christ relation. Now you probably can't even think because we got all this silliness in our mind. But um, that's what I want to um, – you, you sort of like uh, – you, you affirm Luther's use of this, and you like kind of his union dimension of what he's doing there. And it seems like you want to uh, adopt that kind of language as, as maybe uh, really crucial to your project in the end, that faith is the Christ relation. What do you mean by Christ, and what do you mean by relation? Yeah. Um, let me give a general description, and then we'll see if we hit those questions. But, um, you know, I remember when I was writing this book, and I wanted to, when I was telling people I was writing a book on Paul's faith language, people just assumed I was writing a book on Pistis Christu. And I've become so tired of that debate, and it just seems like it's kind of chasing its tail all the time. So I was very clear to people I'm not writing a book on Pistis Christu because people just kind of groan. Either you love it or you don't, and most people that used to love it don't. But um, I do talk about that in the book. I think you may have been one of the people that told me when you read the manuscript to make sure – because I had put it – made it an appendix, and you told me to put it in the book just because people would probably wonder. So I did, but um, 
I think this is important to talking about why I refer to the Christ relation, because the Pistis Christus debate is about whether that phrase in Paul should be translated faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. And um, I've always been a more kind of objective, genitive-leaning person, faith in Christ. Um, I feel like, uh, generally speaking, reception history has supported that, early reception history. I feel like the, the proofs for that are stronger than the proofs against it. But as I was looking at the text afresh for this book, as I was thinking about this language of the Christ relation, um, I felt like there should be another category that we think about where Pistis Christus is talking about this relationship, this kind of mediating relationship where God connects humans to himself through Christ. And that's the Christ relation. And um, you talked about my article on idolatry. This is a similar conclusion I came to with how pagans viewed in the Greco-Roman world their cult statues. In some way, their cult, they knew that their cult statue was separate from the deity, but in another way, they believed their cult statue was the means by which they came into interaction with their deity. And so it was this interesting blend of separation and unity, which I think actually fits early Christianity, interestingly. And so the Christ relation is this idea that I can be, that a believer can be connected to God, but that connection is through this agent of Christ. And so when I refer to the Christ relation, I think of it as this sort of interlocking or interlinking with Christ that unites God with, uh, with mortals. And so when I say that faith is all about that, it, it's not all about Christ doing everything for us, even though his agency is prior and superlative. It's not all about us doing everything by pulling up our own bootstraps. It's sort of emphasizing the fact and nature of this relationship that brings two people together as one. And so, yes, faith is a, a kind of mode of receptivity, but it's more than anything else a linking or connecting into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what a, that's the Christ relation is. Mm-hmm. And whenever you, um, as you were describing, you kind of slipped into our, I think, our common way of speaking. We call it, we said, for a believer. I mean, obviously, we don't want to exclude belief when we talk about it, but it, you could you could possibly use the word for a loyal one or for an allegiant one or for a faithful one uh, to connect to uh, Christ. And, um, yeah, one of the things that I think is um, still, we still need to recover in this whole discussion, right, of, of sort of the Christ relation is, of course, the Christ is a king and the royal emphasis of, of the title, right? So whenever I hear Christ relation, and I see read Luther. It seems that he's distant from that kind of concern. Like he uses a wedding analogy, right? Um, as he explains it, or uses an analogy of a ring set in the midst of uh, you know a stone set in the midst of a ring, right? Um, and other analogies too, doubtless, right? To talk about um, uh, union. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'd like to see stronger emphasis on um, on kind of the royal dimension of all that um, in in some of this language uh, with Christ relation, and that's of course my own you know um, distinctive uh, uh, urgency. Um, how about as we kind of wrap things up here? Then a final question for you: um, What do you think is the greatest urgencies going forward in this conversation? Like, like maybe, and you can take that either in the academy or the church sense, or maybe you see those as united. But what is the greatest urgency moving forward in this Pistis conversation for the church, for the academy, however you want to see it? Like, what's the future of Pistis as Nijay Gupta sees it? 
Yeah, well, for the Academy, the next book I'd like to see written maybe is on uh, Pistuo. Um, there's some things that Tom Wright has said about this that I don't quite agree with. I think you may have also talked about this, that Pistuo could be used as um, t- uh, to, to give allegiance. Um, I don't think Tom actually gave evidence for that. I think he sort of mentions Josephus, but I, I couldn't actually find that. The only place I ever found where Pistillo is used in language of loyalty is actually in that Dio Chrysostom uh, text that, that you mentioned before. Otherwise, I didn't really see that, and I think that's another place where there's still a need. Um, I focused on Pistis almost entirely, like 99%, and I didn't do much with Pistillo, and I think there's actually space for that because of how it's used in 1 Corinthians 15, how it's used in the Gospels. I think there's space for that. In the church, yeah, I think that would be a helpful book. I agree yeah. that there needs to be more work done specifically on Pistuo. And, and Jeanette Hagen um, actually, Jeanette uh, Pfeiffer uh, actually um, recommended looking at faith language beyond Pistis uh, in, in a panel discussion with me. And I think that makes sense. She actually talked about Patho uh, and looking at Patho, and and I I don't think you or I have done much work on Patho in particular. But other words that relate to faith, trust, allegiance, um, I think there is space for that. I'm actually working on a book on Paul's theology of love, and because I found love came up so often when you talk about pistis, and also in the ancient world, agape and uh, philos were commonly used in relationship to allegiance. So I think you'd be really interested in in the kind of classical work on this. Uh, David Constan has done a ton of work on this, um, but New Testament studies has often has not done enough work on love language in Paul. I think that actually support your work very closely, and I and it just came up so much in my work on Pistis. I felt like it's worth another book. In the church realm, I feel like it'd be helpful to do more thinking about the relationship between Pistis and works. I couldn't quite come to a conclusion about why Paul was so concerned with works of the law. I, I made some efforts at that in my Galatians chapter, but I'd like to see more work done because I feel like there's this attitude in the church sometimes of uh, faith is maybe a form of being and a form of believing, but when it comes to doing, uh, Christians sometimes don't know how to put that whole package together. Good. Well, I, I think our time is up, so we're going to have to sign up just for the, the sake of that. I'd love to keep this conversation going because um, it's fun. Um, but uh, thanks so much for being with us, Nijay. It's been a real pleasure to have you. It's been great. Thanks so much, Matt. Yeah. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript. Our guest today has been Nijay Gupta, author of Paul and the Language of Faith. This is a brand new book with Erdman's uh, 2020 just out. Uh, get involved in the faith conversation by picking up a copy. You'll find links on our website, onscript.study. Until next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.